Well, good morning. I don't know about you, but uh, I have trouble comprehending really big numbers. Do you understand what a billion is? Or <laughs> is it a big number? It's a big number, isn't it? You know, they tell us that uh, if we could turn the clock back a billion hours, we'd be living about the time Jesus did. Or, if you started counting about uh, 2 o'clock this morning until now, our government would have spent about a billion dollars. Small figures. But uh, in 2001, the Gideons placed their one billionth Bible and then in, uh, I think it's 2015, we placed our second billionth Bible. Now, please understand that uh, nearly all the Bibles that we distribute are placed from a Gideon's hand to an individual's hand. And behind that hand is a face, and behind that face is a story. And there's lots and lots of stories out there that people have Come to know the Lord by uh, the reading of a, a Gideon-placed Bible or Testament. Now, uh, the Gideons uh, were not always able to place a billion Testaments. We started very, very small. Uh, in fact, in 19 or 18 and 98, a couple of men were placed in a hotel together in Wisconsin, and and uh, they were uh, traveling salesmen. In those days, they didn't have computers to, to uh, order supplies or whatever. They had to, salesmen would get on the train Sunday afternoon. They'd ride to different cities, and they'd go around from store to store and write down the orders that uh, the storekeepers needed. And these two particular uh, men, one of them sold groceries and one of them sold uh, paper products. But anyway, as they were placed together in this room, uh, they both discovered they were both Christians, they were both devoted to the Lord, and they thought that it would be really nice if that hotel would have a, <clears throat> a Bible down in the uh, office somewhere that they could borrow and, and take it to your room and, and read the devotioner. And uh, so that, was the, that was the concept, or that was the very nucleus of the Gideon ministry that uh, they could place Bibles in, in strategic places like that. Well, it wasn't until, so the next summer they called for a convention. And they going to, uh, so they, call, they, they contacted several others of their Christian uh, salesmen and uh, they was going to get together. Well, three men showed up, these two guys and one more. But they weren't discouraged. They went ahead and they, they elected a president, a vice president, and a, and a treasurer. And then they had to decide on a, on a name. Well, they first thought they'd name it the, the Association of American Salesmen, a Traveling Salesmen Association. So that, you know, that's pretty, pretty big handling. So they got on their knees and, and uh, prayed. And, and when they came up, why, uh, Brother Knight, John Knight, said, uh, we'll be called Gideons from the seventh chapter of uh, Judges. Uh, Gideon didn't have very many men, but they were effective. And so that was the that was the the theory that they were going to go on. But it wasn't too long until the uh, membership did grow quite a bit. And in 1908, uh, at their state convention in 
Iowa, they, uh, there was a group of Presbyterians together, and they heard what the Gideons were doing, and they said, listen, we will provide the funds for you to buy all the Bibles that it takes to, to put Bibles in every room and every hotel in this town. And so that was the first uh, cooperation between the churches and the Gideons, and uh, th that's why we're here this morning. About 75% of our funds comes from churches just like this, and it is very important. You are, you are really the, the backbone of the Gideon organization. So <clears throat> that gives you just a little bit of a background of, uh, of the organization. Uh, in 1908, that same year, they placed their first Bibles in a hotel in Montana. Uh, I'm just going to give you a few of the dates and the steps that we have grown in. In 1937, there was a, a law passed in several states that a Bible should be placed on every teacher's desk in, in the United States. And uh, this Bible here was placed on my mother-in-law's desk, and I don't know the exact date, but she taught for 40-plus years in Douglas County, and uh, this was one of the early Bibles that the Gideons placed in, uh, in our schools. And then in uh, 1947, the little red testaments were, were given to the, to the individuals themselves, in the little fifth graders in our schools. So that's, uh, that's a couple of the dates. Uh, but in the late 30s, uh, you remember a fellow by the name of Hitler was going across Western Europe, and he was stirring up a lot of trouble. And uh, we had a Gideon in, in uh, Hawaii that could foresee a lot of trouble. And he wanted to, wanted to be able to place a, a testament in the hands of every serviceman in the United States. And he started out by providing 10000 out of his own pocket. He paid for that. And he was able to give those to the, uh, to the Navy personnel that was uh, stationed in in Pearl Harbor, you know, just before the, the bombing in 19, December 1947. And there was, uh, if you've ever been to, has anybody ever been to Hawaii and seen the, the Arizona? If you ever get a chance to visit there, that is a most impressive uh, thing I think I have ever seen. There is a, a, a chapel kind of out in the bay there, and you can go out on this walk, and, and you can see to the right there uh, the, the shell of the battleship Arizona, and that is the tomb for some 1,000 uh, Navy personnel that was lost in that, in that particular ship. But over 3,700 men were lost in, at Pearl Harbor. And uh, the, what's touching about it is as those bodies started washing up on the shore, uh, they would find within those boys' pockets a little Gideon Testament, and in the back, their name would be signed that they had accepted Christ as their Savior, and that provided a lot of comfort to a lot of parents that lost sons in that, in that terrible uh, tragedy. <clears throat> 1972, we started placing uh, these Green Testaments in our colleges, and uh, if there's a, ever a group of Students in America, it's our college students, it's, it's a time that they can, they're free, you know, and, and they make a lot of bad decisions. And these little testaments have helped uh, several of those uh, students to find the Lord. Uh, in, uh, I think it was 70-something, anyway, 
the University of Texas at, uh, at A&M, the Cowboys always have a big bonfire before they have their big homecoming game in the fall. And they had put together a, now they do things big in Texas, you know, and they had about 5,000 logs banded together with cables, and this was going to be their bonfire before the next day was, was homecoming. <clears throat> well, something happened. Some of those cables broke or something, and there was five or eight students killed when those logs came loose. And it devastated the campus at Texas A&M. And they had a, some kind of a, a memorial service after that. And some, you probably can't see this, but there's a girl in very distraught, and she's holding one of these little testaments that had been given by Gideon. So that's quite comforting to know that, you know, those Bibles were there and were able to uh, provide some uh, comfort to them. In 1989, uh, something happened that I didn't think I would probably ever see. I joined the Gideons sometime before that. But the Iron Curtain came down around the communist countries of uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Russia, East Germany. And uh, we were able to go into those countries and, and provide and pr distribute uh, testaments. Uh, when we got to Russia, uh, there was a young man by the name of Viktor Gonrachenko. Uh, he was about to graduate from a very prestigious college in Moscow. And uh, the dean of students called him in and said, Victor, do you understand that there has never been a... I said, we understand you're a Christian, Victor. And he said, yes, I am. And he said, do you know that a Christian has never uh, graduated from this university? And he said, no, I wasn't aware of that. And furthermore... Uh, we don't aim for one to. So you can either denounce your religion or you can uh, quit school. And we'll give you like till Monday to decide. And he said, well, uh, I won't have to wait till Monday. I'm, I'm not going to give up my religion. So, so Victor became the first president of a Gideon in Moscow. And he, I heard him give a couple of three testimonies. And oh my, he was a, he was a modern day Paul in my opinion. He was a great, you can tell some, I could tell some of these stories are really, really, really good. But anyway, uh, uh, a lot of Bibles and Testaments went into those areas, and, and churches were formed, and Christians were uh, established in, in a lot of those countries. Now, uh, getting a little closer to home, a few years back, our then-president, international president of the Gideons uh, International, was called to, uh, to a church in... Uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and uh, somewhat like in your church today, their pastor, well, they, they didn't have a pastor, as a matter of fact. I, uh, they didn't have a pastor, and so they called uh, Mr. Donnelly to uh, speak that morning. When he got there, he was given the whole service, but when he got there, the, uh, they had a missionary that they had been supporting for several years, and uh, he was in town, and, and they wanted to give him a chance to speak in that service, and they asked Mr. Donnelly if he'd care to shorten his uh, presentation a little bit, and he said, oh yes, I'd love to, because in fact, I am assigned to go to uh, Malawi, East Africa in a few weeks, and I would like to know all I can about Malawi, East Africa, and that's where the missionary was located, and so the missionary uh, got up and told the following story, uh, and when I tell this story, I'm sure some of you will be able to identify with, with some things here. In 1908, uh, a boy by the name of uh, Vernon Spencer 
was born in Webb City, Missouri. Now, Webb City is just a suburb of, of Joplin. And at that time, uh, 1908, early eight, uh, 20th century, southwest Missouri, southeast Kansas, northeast Oklahoma, that was the lead and, and zinc capital, I guess, of the world. There was lots and lots of mining. And Webb City was like a wild west town. It was a, it was a typical mining town, and a lot of vice and a lot of corruption was in that town. But that was the setting for Vernon Spencer to be born into. Uh, his older brothers and his father all worked in the mines, and it was a pretty, pretty hard time to make a living in those days. And in fact, uh, when Vernon was real small, he got a hold of a little bit of money, and he bought a ukulele. He loved music. And he bought a ukulele, and his dad was so upset that he didn't buy a pair of shoes or something uh, practical. But uh, so be it. But when Vernon got old enough, he too went to work in the mines. And uh, it was dangerous work. And sure enough, uh, after a back injury, uh, Vernon decided that if he was ever going to get out of the mines, that was the time for him to do that. So he had saved up a little money, and, and he bought a ticket to the West Coast and landed in Hollywood, California, and when he got there, he got a job in a, in a grocery store, and, and uh, any time he could find any kind of a music uh, setting, a, a dance or a concert, or he would go to anything related to music, and uh, uh, while he was doing that, he met some other guys that was also interested in music, and so they got together, and they they formed a little group, and they, they, these were would-be magicians, musicians, let me get this right. <laughs> uh, and some of the people that he met was Bob Nolan and Leonard Sly, and then Vernon, they formed what was called uh, the Pioneer Trio. And now this Leonard Sly's uh, dad was around the group quite a bit, and he said, now Vernon... That's no name for a real musician. So he nicknamed him Tim. And so the rest of his life, he was known as Tim Spencer. And so uh, Leonard thought, well, Leonard Sly is not a very good name for a, a musician. So he changed his name to Roy Rogers. And I see a smile or two. I gave this story at uh, our neighboring church there at home one night, and the pastor was sitting right down here. And when I said Leonard Sly, I saw his face light up, and I knew that he knew something that I didn't know. So after the, after the service, he came up and said, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, ran around with Leonard Sly in, Oklahoma, in Ohio when they were growing up. And so when he went to California then, well, he changed his name to Roy Rogers. And uh, of course, these kids don't know who Roy Rogers are, but you older ones, it's got the gray hair. We, we know what it's about. Okay, so that was, that was the trio. Uh, Leonard Sly, Roy Rogers, Tim Spencer, and uh, uh, Bob Nolan. And they had some, some success as a singing group, but it wasn't until they added the fourth person, and I don't know his name, to that group, and they changed their names to the Sons of the Pioneers. And then their popularity absolutely exploded in the, oh, the 40s. I barely remembered. I remember a picture of seeing this. Uh, it was like a stretch car, and they all traveled in this one vehicle, and, and they went, I mean, all over the country. They had a very unique sound. I love to hear their music. It was country western, country swing, and in fact, uh, there's a group, I think, in uh, Branson now that's uh, offshoot or a 
product of the sons of the pioneers. They still sang the same kind of music and the same, uh, I don't know, pretty much the same kind of music. So anyway, they traveled everywhere, and they were making money hand over fist, and they were gone sometimes weeks at a time. And uh, uh, when they did come home, why, uh, Tim Spencer's wife tried to get him to go to church. Well, he was too tired to go to church. He wouldn't spend time with his kids. So uh, that was kind of their, kind of a little friction between them there. And she asked her pastor, said, is there any, and she was really concerned about his spiritual well-being because Tim was writing and arranging nearly all of their music at that time. And one of the songs that he wrote was uh, A Room Full of Roses. You, some of you probably heard it. It's, it's a beautiful love song. And it's one of the few songs that has ever gone to the top on the pop charts as well as on the country charts. And he wrote that song as well as uh, Cigarettes and Whiskey and Wild Wild Women. Now, some of you older ones might remember uh, Hank Williams singing that, and he probably maybe lived it, I don't know. But anyway, that's, that, that was kind of the, 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 the uh, situation that Tim's wife was having to put up with. And so she asked her pastor, said, Pastor, is there anything I can do to inspire my husband uh, to... Uh, uh, think spiritual thoughts, and he said, well, uh, you, know their, you know their tenure, you know where they're going to be everywhere, you have addresses, why don't you write a letter and send it to these places where they're going to be, and in that letter include a few uh, Bible verses or uh, scriptures. Okay, she would do that. And so when, uh, when the Sons of the Pioneers checked into a hotel in uh, Pennsylvania in the fall of... Uh, 1947, sure enough, here was a letter for, for Tim, and he took it and went up to his room and opened it up and, and began to read it, and sure enough, she had put a Bible verse or two in it, and it really touched Tim. He, whatever, I don't remember the verses, but it was really, uh, spoke to him, and he wished that he could read additional verses by that, and so he looked around, and there was a, a Gideon placed a Bible on the, on the, uh, nightstand and so he read and God spoke to him so so strongly that he fell on his knees right there by his bed and he gave his heart to the Lord and uh, not only uh, did it change his uh, his heart but it changed his outlook on life and it changed his uh, uh, had a new perspective he had a new purpose and it wasn't long until he had a new uh, occupation he he resigned from the group and opened his own uh, music store. Uh, he had been so instrumental in writing and arranging their music all through the years that he decided that he would just start his own uh, music uh, uh, store. And so he, he founded Mana Music Company, and it's still in, in existence. And then he could write and he could arrange and he could uh, publish music full time. And this was what he really, really wanted to do. Later on, uh, uh, Tim's son, Hal, had gone to a, a youth camp, a Christian youth camp one summer, and while he was there, they were singing a song that kind of had a, a ring to it, and, and uh, this boy brought it home and gave it to his dad and said, can you do anything with this song? And so uh, he contacted the author of the song, and, and they got together, and they arranged and, and tweaked the song a little bit, and... Uh, in 1957, at the Billy Graham Crusade in, in uh, Madison Square Garden in New York, I remember uh, very well that uh, 
that crusade. It was the year I graduated from high school, and it went for three months. And every night, uh, George Beverly Shea would sing, How Great Thou Art. And uh, that was the song that this boy had brought home, and they had tweaked it. And I thought it kind of coincidental that you selected that song to be uh, on the program this morning. And if, if you will look in, in page 10 in your songbook, that white songbook, if you look at the bottom down there, you'll see Manna Music. Uh, and that was the music company that uh, Tim Spencer uh, uh, formed and is still in business today. And uh, it's kind of interesting how that a Bible, a Gideon Place Bible, would be instrumental in a song that has touched absolutely hundreds of thousands of people through the years and is still sung uh, quite often. But uh, meanwhile, back in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, while the, the Gideons down here was here listening to this story and said, well, that's, that's a great story, but what in the world did that, does that have to do with uh, a missionary from uh, East uh, Africa? And then this uh, missionary explained, he said, my name is Dr. Stephen uh, Spencer. My grandfather told me about Jesus. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm the head of the college in, in uh, Africa here, and we train and send out hundreds and hundreds of preachers to go all over Africa. So that one Bible that was placed in that uh, hotel room, uh, perhaps someone in a congregation like this provided the money to, to buy that Bible, and some Gideon took the time to place it there. But that that inspiration that that young man got from that Bible has touched uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people and is still still touching people. Kind of touched me this morning when you sung that. Appreciate it. So uh, uh, after 70 years, that Bible is still is still uh, touching people, touching lives. So we don't, we never know uh, what God's going to do with his word. He said it would not return into him void. So it's important that we place them out there in, uh, in uh, society. And we do place them in many, many places. Uh, so uh, in, in closing, uh, you might wonder, what, what can you do? Well, first of all, we need your prayers. We appreciate your prayers very much. Uh, secondly, you can give. And uh, uh, about 80% of our income goes to youth oriented Bibles. Uh, these, these two right here that are grade school and our colleges. And so those, those are big items on our agenda. Uh, reasons to give and to support, uh, first of all, it's effective. Uh, a lot of people have found Christ through reading and uh, looking into those Bibles. We are in uh, 200 countries around the world. Uh, we're printing uh, Bibles and Testaments in 100 different languages. Uh, it's efficient. Now, when I first uh, joined the Gideons, uh, these little testaments were, I think, $1.35. And because of uh, mass production and uh, technology, the laser printing and all that, this is one thing that the cost has actually gone down a little bit. So your money will go a little further than it used to. And so uh, another thing is uh, when you give, it goes 100% to, to purchase and distribute Bibles. Uh, and the way we, the reason we can do that is that Gideons have dues each year that we pay, and those dues pay our permanent personnel in our headquarters, and so that frees up. Uh, I know of no other organization that can make that uh, 
that statement. But uh, thank you again for allowing us to come and, and uh, sharing uh, our story with you. I don't know, have you, do you use any of the Gideon cards? I didn't see it, I didn't look. If you'd be interested in this, I'd, I'll get you some of these cards. Uh, for memory, in memory or uh, special days, uh, our Sunday school teachers celebrating 66 years. Is that right? It'd be a good time to send him, buy a couple of Bibles and send him one of these cards. Say, hey, that's, that's quite a while to put up with each other. <laughs> I had to put both in. But anyway, uh, if you don't have those, I'll try to, try to make arrangements to get you some of those. So uh, anyway, when you give, you can, you can be assured that it will go 100% to buy Bibles. I really do appreciate you allowing us to come and share these, uh, these stories with you. I could tell you some more stories, but uh, uh, this one, when I, when I read this one about the, that song, it really touched me. And I've used this different places because uh, I remember when that song first came out, and I just loved that thong, song. And it, uh, it, every song usually has a story some, somewhere or another. And, and I thought it kind of interesting how this one coincided with that one. Okay, thank you very much, Jerry. If you take over, please.